Chapter Ten of Uneasy Money. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Uneasy Money by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Ten. In the days that followed their interrupted love scene at Regalheimer's restaurant that night of Lord Dawlish's unfortunate encounter with the tray-bearing waiter. Dudley Pickering's behaviour had puzzled Claire Fenwick. She had taken it for granted that the next day, at the latest, he would resume the offer of his hand, heart, and automobiles. But time passed, and he made no move in that direction. Of limousine bodies, carburettors, spark-plugs, and inner tubes, he spoke with freedom and eloquence. But, by the subject of love and marriage, he avoided absolutely. His behaviour was inexplicable. Claire was piqued. She was in the position of a hostess who has swept and garnished her house against the coming of a guest and waits in vain for that guest's arrival. She made up her mind what to do when Dudley Pickering proposed to her next time, and thereby it seemed to her had removed all difficulties in the way of that proposal. She little knew her Pickering. Dudley Pickering was not a self-starter in the motordrome of love. He needed cranking. He was that most unpromising of matrimonial material, a shy man with a cautious disposition. If he overcame his shyness, caution applied the foot-brake. If he succeeded in forgetting caution, shyness shut off the gas. At Regelheimer's some miracle had made him not only reckless, but unself-conscious. Possibly the dream of Psyche had gone to his head. At any rate, he had been on the very verge of proposing to Claire when the interruption had occurred, and in bed that night reviewing the affair he had been appalled at the narrowness of his escape from taking a definite step. Except in the way of business, he was a man who hated definite steps. He never accepted even a dinner invitation without subsequent doubts and remorse. The consequence was that in the days that followed the Regalheimer episode, what Lord Weatherby would have called the lamp of love burned rather low in Mr. Pickering as if the acetylene were running out. He still admired Claire intensely, and experienced disturbing emotions when he beheld her perfect tonneau and wonderful headlights. But he regarded her with a cautious fear. Although he sometimes dreamed sentimentally of marriage in the abstract, of actual marriage, of marriage with a flesh-and-blood individual, of marriage that involved clergymen and voices that breathe or Eden, and giggling bridesmaids and cake, Dudley Pickering was afraid with a terror that woke him sweating in the night. His shyness shrank from ceremony. His caution jibed at the mysteries of married life. So his attitude towards Claire, the only girl who had succeeded in bewitching him into the opening words of an actual proposal, was a little less cordial and affectionate than if she had been a rival automobile manufacturer. Matters were in this state when Lady Weatherby, who, having danced classical dances for three months without a break, required a rest, shifted her camp to the house which she had rented for the summer at Brookport, Long Island, taking with her Algy, her husband, the monkey Eustace, and Claire and Mr. Pickering, her guests. The house was a large one, capable of receiving a big party, but she did not wish to entertain on an ambitious scale. The only other guest she proposed to put up was Roscoe Sheriff, her press agent. 
who was to come down as soon as he could get away from his metropolitan duties. It was a pleasant and romantic place, the estate which Lady Weatherby had rented. Standing on a hill, the house looked down through green trees on the gleaming waters of the bay. Smooth lawns and shady walks it had, and rustic seats beneath spreading cedars. Yet for all its effect on Dudley Pickering, it might have been a gasworks. He roamed the smooth lawns with Clare, and sat with her on the rustic benches, and talked guardedly of lubricating oil. There were moments when Clare was almost impelled to forfeit whatever chance she might have had of becoming mistress of thirty million dollars and a flourishing business, for the satisfaction of administering just one whole-hearted slap on his round, thinly-covered head. And then Roscoe Sheriff came down, and Dudley Pickering, who for days had been using all his resolution to struggle against the siren, suddenly found that there was no siren to struggle against. No sooner had the press agent appeared than Clare deserted him shamelessly and absolutely. She walked with Roscoe Sheriff. Mr. Pickering experienced the discomforting emotions of the man who pushes violently against an abruptly yielding door, or treads heavily on the top stair where there is no top stair. He was shaken, and the clam-like stolidity which he had assumed as protection gave way. Night had descended upon Brookport. Eustace the monkey was in his little bed, Lord Weatherby in the smoking-room. It was Sunday, the day of rest. Dinner was over, and the remainder of the party were gathered in the drawing-room, with the exception of Mr. Pickering, who was smoking a cigar on the porch. A full moon turned Long Island into a fairyland. Gloom had settled upon Dudley Pickering, and he smoked sadly. All rather stout automobile manufacturers are sad when there is a full moon. It makes them feel lonely. It stirs their hearts to thoughts of love. Marriage loses its terrors for them, and they think wistfully of hooking some fair woman up the back, and buying her hats. Such was the mood of Mr. Pickering, when, through the dimness of the porch, there appeared a white shape moving softly towards him. "'Is that you, Mr. Pickering?' Clare dropped into the seat beside him. From the drawing-room came the soft tinkle of a piano. The sound blended harmoniously with the quiet peace of the night. Mr. Pickering let his cigar go out, and clutched the sides of his chair. Oilers sing three songs of Araby, and the tales of far Cashmere, while tales of cheat eat thee over sigh, and charm thee to a tear. Claire gave a little sigh. What a beautiful voice Mr. Sheriff has! Dudley Pickering made no reply. He thought Roscoe Sheriff had a beastly voice. He resented Roscoe Sheriff's voice. He objected to Roscoe Sheriff's polluting this fair night with his cacophony. Don't you think so, Mr. Pickering? Uh-huh. That doesn't sound very enthusiastic, Mr. Pickering. I want you to tell me something. Have I done anything to offend you? Mr. Pickering started violently. Eh? I have seen so little of you these last few days. A little while ago we were always together, having such interesting talks. But lately it has seemed to me that you have been avoiding me." A feeling of helplessness swept over Mr. Pickering. He was vaguely conscious of the sense of being treated unjustly, of there being a flaw in Clare's words somewhere if he could only find it. But the sudden attack had deprived him 
of the free and unfettered use of his powers of reasoning. He gurgled wordlessly, and Claire went on, her low, sad voice mingling with the moonlight in a manner that caused thrills to run up and down his spine. He felt paralysed. Caution urged him to make some excuse and follow it with a bolt to the drawing-room, but he was physically incapable of taking the excellent advice. Sometimes when you are out in your pickering gem or your pickering giant, the car hesitates, falters, and stops dead, and your chauffeur, having examined the carburetor, turns to you and explains the phenomenon in these words. The mixture is too rich. So it was with Mr. Pickering now. The moonlight alone might not have held him. Claire's voice alone might not have held him. But against the two combined he was powerless. The mixture was too rich. He sat and breathed a little stertoriously, and there came to him that conviction that comes to all of us now and then, that we are at a crisis in our careers, and that the moment through which we are living is a moment big with fate. The voice in the drawing-room stopped. Having sung songs of Araby and tales of far Kashmir, Mr. Roscoe Sheriff was refreshing himself with a comic paper. But Lady Weatherby, seated at the piano, still touched the keys softly and the sound increased the richness of the mixture which choked Dudley Pickering's spiritual carburetor. It is not fair that a rather stout manufacturer should be called upon to sit in the moonlight while a beautiful girl, to the accompaniment of soft music, reproaches him with having avoided her. I should be so sorry, Mr. Pickering, if I had done anything to make a difference between us. Eh? said Mr. Pickering. I have so few real friends over here. Claire's voice trembled. I, I get a little lonely, a little homesick sometimes. She paused, musing, and a spasm of pity rent the bosom beneath Dudley Pickering's ample shirt. There was a buzzing in his ears, and a lump choked his throat. Of course I'm loving life here. I think America's wonderful, and nobody could be kinder than Lady Weatherby. But I miss my home. It's the first time I've been away so long. I feel very far away sometimes. There are only three of us at home—my mother, myself, and my little brother, little Percy." Her voice trembled again as she spoke the last two words, and it was possibly this that caused Mr. Pickering to visualize Percy as a sort of little Lord Fauntleroy, his favourite character in English literature. He had a vision of a small, delicate, wistful child, pining away for his absent sister. Consumptive, probably or curvature of the spine. He found Claire's hand in his. He supposed, dully, that he must have reached out for it. Soft and warm it lay there, while the universe paused breathlessly. And then, from the semi-darkness beside him, there came the sound of a stifled sob, and his fingers closed as if someone had touched a button. We have always been such chums. He's only ten. Such a dear boy. He must be missing me. She stopped, and simultaneously Dudley Pickering began to speak. There is this to be said for your shy, cautious man, that, on the rare occasions when he does tap at the vein of eloquence, that vein becomes a geezer. It was as if, after years of silence and monosyllables, Dudley Pickering was endeavouring to restore the average. He began by touching on his alleged neglect and avoidance of Clare, he called himself names and more names. He plumbed the depths of repentance and remorse. Proceeding from this, he eulogized her courage, the pluck 
with which she presented a smiling face to the world while tortured inwardly by separation from her little brother Percy. He turned to his own feelings. But there are some things which the historian should hold sacred, some things which he should look on as proscribed material for his pen and the actual words of the stout manufacturer of automobiles proposing marriage in the moonlight fall into this class. It is enough to say that Dudley Pickering was definitive. He left no room for doubt as to his meaning. Dudley! She was in his arms. He was embracing her. She was his the latest model, self-starting, with limousine body and all the newest. No, no, his mind was wandering. She was his, this divine girl this queen among women, this—' From the drawing-room, Roscoe Sheriff's voice floated out in unconscious comment. "'Good-bye, boys, I'm going to be married to-morrow. Good-bye, boys, I'm going from sunshine to sorrow. No more sitting up till broad daylight.' Did the momentary chill cool the intensity of Dudley Pickering's ardour? If so, he overcame it instantly. He despised Roscoe Sheriff. He flattered himself that he had shown Roscoe Sheriff pretty well who was who and what was what. They would have a wonderful wedding. Dozens of clergymen, scores of organs playing, the voice that breathed o'er Eden, platoons of bridesmaids, wagon-loads of cake, and then they would go back to Detroit and live happily ever after. And it might be that in time to come there would be given to them little runabouts. I'm going to a life of misery and strife, so good-bye, boys. Hang Roscoe Sheriff! What did he know about it? Confound him! Dudley Pickering turned a deaf ear to the song, and wallowed in his happiness. Claire walked slowly down the moonlit drive. She had removed herself from her Dudley's embraces, for she wished to be alone, to think. The engagement had been announced. All that part of it was over. Dudley's stammering speech, the unrestrained delight of Polly Weatherby, the facetious rendering of the wedding glide on the piano by Roscoe Sheriff, and it now remained for her to try to discover the way of conveying the news to Bill. It had just struck her that, though she knew that Bill was in America, she had not his address. What was she to do? She must tell him, otherwise it might quite easily happen that they might meet in New York when she returned there. She pictured the scene. She saw herself walking with Dudley Pickering. Along came Bill. Claire, darling! Heavens, what would Dudley think? It would be too awful. She couldn't explain. No, somehow or other, even if she put detectives on his trail, she must find him. And be off with the old love, now that she was on with the new. She reached the gate and leaned over it. And as she did so, Someone in the shadow of a tall tree spoke her name. A man came into the light, and she saw that it was Lord Dawlish. End of chapter 10 Reading by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org